I'm Keith MacArthur. Unlocking Bryson's Brain is a podcast about my son, (laughs) the rare disease that keeps him from walking or talking. I mean, Bryson's perfect, but his life is really hard. And our family's search for a cure. Oh my gosh, maybe science is ready for this. It's part memoir, part medical mystery. We can do just about anything. Modifying DNA. My heart and my throat. Cure is controversial. Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. So we have a menu that offers the whole mushrooms, microdosing capsules. And in terms of uh, edibles, we offer chocolates, gummies, hot chocolate, teas. Yeah, he's talking about mushrooms. Magic ones. The not legal ones. The ones he sells right out in the open. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Shops that sell mushrooms are popping up across the country. You know, the kind where you're like, I can taste colors. Even though psilocybin, the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms, is illegal. We look at how these stores are allowed to stay open. And... Coming soon to a radio show near you. In a world where streaming TV is losing money, studios go to war with writers, and your monthly bills go up. It's Too Hollywood, Too Furious. Streaming at the brink. Up first. (laughs) Excuse me, I mean, uh, coming up now. How do you know Canada's housing market is through the looking glass? One word. Drawbridge. Put up your hand if you watch House Hunters on HGTV. She wants an open-concept, mid-century modern home near downtown St. Louis. He'd like a cozy craftsman with a big yard in the suburbs. Their budget? $200,000. Cut to Canadian viewers staring blankly at the screen. 200k for a house in a big Canadian city? Good luck. Housing affordability is one of this country's biggest problems. And house hunting here, Jennifer Keene, not for the faint of heart. No, it is not. Prices have gone kind of bonkers in this country. And when you compare us to other places in the world, it can be shocking. In fact, there's a commentator on TikTok who does quite a few videos about real estate in Canada. He goes by the handle Millennial Moron. And he has this recurring bit where he looks at houses for sale in cities like Vancouver So, three-bed, three-bath, cool ceiling fan south of downtown. What do you think it'll cost you to live here? Only five and a half million dollars. And he compares those to castles on the market in Europe. The ground floor of the main house features an entrance hall, cloakroom, event space, billiard room, a fireplace, drawing room, sitting room, garden room, dining room, kitchen, secondary kitchen, butler's pantry, office, smaller... Butler's pantry? That that sounds nice. (laughs) He's actually describing a place called Altmore Estate in Scotland, which was recently put up for sale by Bob Dylan. Okay, so what's Bob Dylan's castle going for? Get this. Less than the three-bedroom in Vancouver. Come on. It's selling for just over $4 million Canadian. All right, well, you know, that kind of cash, though, is still not kind of blowing in the wind. 
<laughs> no, but you don't need to spend that much. If you're willing to live in something a little less rock starry, say, you can find a villa or a chateau in the country. So we have 11 bedrooms in total. Yeah. There's um, three floors. Three floors. So we got the main floor that we're sitting on now with dining room, grand salon, um, petit salon, petit office. Yeah. And uh, a couple and of years ago, Sarah and Stephen Cole were watching a lot of that reality show called Escape to the Chateau. They were living in Fergus, Ontario, and they thought, why not? So they traveled to France and started looking. And in that two month period, we, we saw. I think five chateau. Yeah. Um, and this one was the last one we saw. We didn't actually get to see the interior, but um, it just t- tugged on the heartstrings. And it's a 16th century chateau in the south of France. What we realized is, for the money that we could get for our house in Fergus, we could buy this one. And we were. It was definitely a factor of the the pricing of the the Ontario housing market. We knew it was it was wild. How nice was their house in Fergus? I think it was pretty nice. They had a four-bedroom on the main drag in Fergus. They'd done some reno to it over the years, put on a deck. And, you know, this was during the pandemic. Fergus is a couple of hours outside of Toronto, so just the kind of place that people were looking to move out to. And their house sold within the week. So we went from, you know, three-quarters of an acre in Ontario to 37 acres in France. We basically um, bought this outright. Yeah. Uh, on we the proceeds of, of the house. It was pretty much a sort of straight swap. So they traded a four-bedroom in Fergus for a chateau in southern France. That's quite something. It is. But they sold their house in Fergus for twice what they'd paid for it five years earlier. Huh. This is really kind of the double-edged sword of Canadian real estate, isn't it? You've got people out there who want to buy a house. They can't get into market. They're being shut out. Stuff just isn't affordable. But then if you're an existing homeowner... Your house is worth a whole bunch more. Like Sarah's and Stevens, for them, things just fell into place. Like there is, yeah. there that is that is an, a reality that can happen if you you know you can sell your house and move here, um, and you can fall in love with the fantasy. I mean, this oh, is yeah. this is a fairy tale. Okay, so how's the fairy tale? Like, what's life like in an eleven bedroom French chateau? Well, it's a slower, small town life. It takes a lot of effort, though, to look after all of that space. As, as one real estate agent told me, no one normal buys a castle. <laughs> the number of people who actually want to buy one is pretty small. And the supply, according to realtor Alex Watzdorf, is surprisingly large. Basically, if you, if you look at Europe, you look at countries like Germany or, or France or Italy, and there's a huge abundance of uh, old castles. Um, these countries uh, had a feudal system. So every little um, village, every little area had their own um, lord and they would have a castle. So, so Europe is just kind of like chock-a-block with castles? It is. They're all over the place. And these are structures that were built to last. I mean, Alex says the other thing you need to keep in mind is that castles are designed to repel your enemies. But maybe not have, like, an open concept kitchen. (laughs) They have towers where you can pour the boiling oil down on them. (laughs) That's what they're like. So they're old. They're drafty. If you want to update them, it's going to cost you. Uh, And hence you get these the the, the prices that you see. You know, you see castles in France that are being offered for for one euro. But the the money that you have to put into it is uh, astronomical. Well, yeah, yeah. You got to pay a moat guy. Yeah, I wonder if they have moat guys. 
Probably. It's a, maybe not a growth industry, but but sure. <laughs> so, you know, you either have money to burn, right? Or you're like Stephen and Sarah. You turn the property itself into a moneymaker. So they have artists' retreats, they host guests, and they have a YouTube channel called Manor and Maker. So what I'm hearing here, being Lord of the Manor, not really cheap. But but this idea, Jen, that, that you can trade a Canadian bungalow for a castle, it's still kind of wild. It is. I mean, Canadian house prices have gone up sharply in the last 10 years, but our incomes haven't kept up. John Pasalis is the founder of Realosophy. It's a real estate brokerage in Toronto. He says, compared to some of our peer countries, we aren't doing so great. So we're significantly less affordable. I mean, you know, if we compare it to the U.S., you know, U.S. home prices have been appreciating probably closer to incomes than we have in Canada. Uh, and Canada has, has significantly accelerated relative to, you know, what's going on in most other countries, I'd say, around the world. Average house prices have roughly doubled in the last 10 years. Now, that's mostly driven by the really hot markets in Ontario and B.C., but still. Yeah, but still, prices across the country, they're up and up a lot, as you're saying. And this isn't news to us. We've been talking about this for what seems like forever, Jen. And we've talked about the fixes for years, mortgage stress tests, new rules for foreign buyers. They tried to slow down demand, but, you know, it hasn't really stopped prices from going up. And then there's the population growth in this country. You can point to other things, but Pasala says our population has just grown much faster than other G7 countries. The reason population growth usually has a huge impact on home prices is because it's very easy for a country to say, okay, let's let's grow by an extra 300,000 people next year, right? It's very easy to do, you know, uh, the federal governments have all the levers to do that. It's very hard to say, well, let's build an extra 150,000 homes next year. Canada's population is going up at a rate of around 3% a year, whereas some European countries, it's more like 1% a year. Well, that's a really big gap. And I guess part of what it means is there's more demand for a two-bedroom in Kitchener than there is for a, I don't know, castle in Sweden. Or a chateau in France. When Stephen and Sarah bought their chateau, it, it had been on the market for three years. What was it like? Were there like deer in the foyer? Was it all overgrown with vines and moss? <laughs> it would be nice to think. I, I don't know. But what I do know is the, the market there just isn't as hot as it is in Canada. And that's something that they had to think about when they decided to move. Because if something were to happen and they need to come back to Canada. We probably could sell the chateau and not have enough money to move back to Fergus. Yeah. Like that, that could be a reality of it. Huh. So you can escape to the chateau, but if Canada's housing market doesn't slow down, you might not be able to afford to come back. The housing market of no return. Huh. All right. Thanks, Jen. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On your Radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershrude. Psychedelics are, you know, 
supposed to expand your consciousness, man. And now true believers are trying to expand the market. A tiny hitch in that biz plan? Psilocybin, the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms, is illegal. Yet, stores with names like Shroomies, Magic Mush, Zoomers are sprouting up in cities across Canada. Just regular retail stores selling an illegal drug in broad daylight. How is this happening? Our producer Daniel Nerman took a, well, trip to find out. I'm standing on a sidewalk in Toronto's Chinatown in front of a store with a big red mushroom in the window. I'm waiting for it to open, and just before noon, an employee shows up and lets me in. Come on in. Our shop is named Fun Guys, and we're fun guys, right? And we love Fun Guy. Medi Libera shows me around, but... There isn't much to see. Just a couple of decorative toadstools on the counter and a price list. So we have a menu that offers the whole mushrooms, microdosing capsules, and in terms of uh, edibles, we offer chocolates, gummies, hot chocolate, teas, candy. None of this is legal in Canada. But Fun Guys isn't trying to hide what it's selling. It has 14 clearly marked stores across Ontario. We understand that we're not doing something legal, right? But there's a demand for it, you know, because it, it can help a lot of people. Of course, mushrooms have been shown to help people with anxiety, depression, PTSD, addiction. Now, Health Canada hasn't approved psilocybin for over-the-counter sales. So... How can stores like this one operate in the open? We, we just are. You know, it's exactly the same thing as uh, how marijuana was back in 2015, 2016, where shops were popping left and right. And yes, police does raid sometimes. They don't shut us down. They just, you know, come in, take the product from time to time when they want to do a raid. And that's it. Since the start of this year, various fungi's locations have been raided 18 times. This summer, Hamilton police cracked down on two dispensaries and confiscated $70,000 worth of product and cash. For the most part, cities are leaving the issue to law enforcement. But a spokesperson for the Toronto police says right now, their priority is serious drug trafficking. In other words, they have bigger fish to fry. And the police are wisely saying, you know what? Like there's a murder here, there's fentanyl here, there's an opioid epidemic, there's domestic Paul violence. Lewin is a cannabis and psychedelics lawyer in Toronto. Police do not have a limitless budget. And there's, there's really serious bad things happening in communities all across Canada. So these stores just keep popping up like mushrooms. And they're doing it for the same reason any business starts up. I, I don't have particulars on their bottom line, but uh, uh, I mean, it's fair to assume they're making some money. But Lewin doesn't just think it's about the money today. It's about the money tomorrow. 
He says dispensaries like Fungi's are on a crusade to make psychedelic drugs legal in Canada. You know, we saw this with cannabis. Many things led to cannabis legalization, but one of them was the civil disobedience and many people standing up for what was right. And that helped move the needle. And that's what we're seeing now. And Fungi's is expanding. They recently opened stores in Quebec, Alberta, and B.C. Plans are underway to launch a dispensary in Detroit. And Medi Libera thinks that's just great. Well, it's important to have them everywhere so we can make it available. Because you don't want to get it from the corner street dealer in a Ziploc bag. You don't know what you're getting, right? At least here in a dispensary, we the people working here know what we're talking about, right? And we just want to make it more easily accessible. But only if you have cash. Yeah, we prefer to take cash, you know, like nature of the business. So no credit cards, no debit? No. E-transfer? As, as a last resort. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershrude. Remember the warm glow of being wooed by TV? A whole world is streaming for one low price. Now, it's all cracking down on password sharing and raising monthly subscription fees. Writers just settled a bitter strike. Actors are still on the picket line. All of this points to a hard truth for the economics of entertainment. Streaming may not be the stuff that dreams are made of. So what could this mean for what we watch? Brian Steinberg is the senior TV editor for Variety. He's been following the business of entertainment for more than two decades. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Did we learn anything about the business side of the industry from these strikes that maybe we didn't know before? I think people knew about it behind the scenes, but it's kind of been cemented in everyone's consciousness that the business of making TV and movies really has changed a lot. Uh, Streaming economics are very different from TV economics. And if it wasn't learned, it's been kind of hammered in everyone's brain over the course of these uh, five months of negotiation with the Writers Guild. All right, when we look at the economic side of things then, will the deal that they came up with change anything for, for the economics of film and TV? I think it's going to accelerate some of these trends. You know, I mean, they, they're now paying out a, a bigger portion to the writers. Uh, I, I presume actors will, will, will generate some kind of similar concessions given the way things are going. Um, and I think it, it will just kind of cement this model of making fewer episodes per program, making fewer shows overall, you know, kind of putting your big money into these tentpole franchises like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. And I would expect the recent strikes to kind of cement that thinking. Now, why is that? If you say it's cementing these trends that have been happening, what's, what's pushing these trends? What's behind them? Well, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of scrutiny on these media companies from Wall Street. Um, very few of them have, have made a profitable streaming service. And in the meantime, the, the thing that generates a lot of cash, cable networks, is being almost ignored so they can, they can fund streaming. Okay, so what are the streamers doing? I mean, obviously, no one wants to lose money. None of them do. So are they looking and saying, okay, you know, how do we squeeze some cash out of this thing? They are. I mean, I, one of the recent trends is not keeping every last show up on their services. 
Uh, you know, I think Warner Brothers has kind of pioneered this, looking at saying, hey, no one's watching the fourth season of such and such anymore, or we're not getting a lot of view. Let's pull it off. We're not no longer paying out licensing fees and residuals to the actors and people who made this show if no one's watching it. I think, you know, not making every last archival thing available is going to become a, a bigger thing, I think. That's, that's one way of kind of keeping cash outflows down. What else? I mean, there's always been the sort of this specter that uh, we're going to get commercials and all of a sudden streaming is just going to turn into cable. I think that fear is, is, is being realized very quickly. Uh, you've seen Amazon announce they're going to unveil a new ad-supported tier. In fact, it's kind of become the de facto tier unless you pay more for an ad-free one. AMC, just uh, the AMC Networks with the famous The Walking Dead, just launched an AMC Plus that has ad support. I think these are cheaper. You know, uh, the networks can say, hey, we used to have a model where we got paid for advertising and paid for distribution. Let's keep a, a dual revenue thing coming in. Let's get paid for advertising and for subscriptions. And I feel like, you know, we're going to start seeing more commercial breaks, more commercials in and around our experience. For those who don't, don't subscribe to the ad-free tier. Uh, but I think you know, given the way the world's going, when people are concerned about recessions and, right, and inflationary prices, the, the, the average wallet can't expand and pay for 15 of these services for ad-free anymore, I suspect. Well, how's that going to play with people, though? Because, you know, folks don't like ads. One of the great selling points of, of these streaming services was, hey, they are ad-free. What do you, where do you, how do you see the reaction to that? I think it's going to be a problem. You're right. The, the main, one of the big reasons everyone jumped to streaming is because it has fewer ads, sometimes even no ads. What a great thing. But, uh, you know, I think the bills coming due for these companies like Paramount and NBC and Disney, and they need to generate some cash. And therefore, ad support is going to work. People are used to seeing ads. Maybe they'll see some fewer ads. Maybe they'll see more creative ways of putting ads into the experience, like things that kind of flow around the screen or things that pop up when you when you pause the show. But there are going to be ads unless you uh, agree to pay more for, for not having them. Sorry, the ads would come when you pause the show, so it wouldn't be like, okay, at the 12-minute mark of The Office, there's going to be an ad. It would be more like you're watching, and then you pause to, like, go get a snack, and then you get an ad? Well, I think you'll have, you'll have both. You're, you're going to have the average, usual commercial breaks, but they are experimenting with things like, like they call them pause ads. And you stop on Hulu, you, you stop Hulu, and an ad for Charmin pops up saying, got to go, time for a break. And I think you're going to see uh, more of those as time goes by. An ad for Charmin. That would be a good tie-in. Um, now, what is all this, uh, the financial piece of what we're talking about? What does this mean for what we're actually seeing on TV? I mean, for a long time, we had sort of this idea that we're in this moment of peak TV. Are we still in this moment of peak TV? We still are. There. There's so much out there to watch. But I do think that money is going to force these companies to kind of scrutinize their spend, to really know what they're doing when they do it. You're going to, you're starting to see more sports come on come on streaming, which you know the rights to those are are, are astronomical. So I, I think the the pace at which we produce shows in the past five to eight years cannot continue unless the business gets a lot better very quickly. But uh, I, I do think PTV is probably we're probably going to come down the mountain pretty soon. So we're going to see less TV, just less stuff on that we can watch. What about creatively? Like, what about the, some of the creative chances we've seen over the last, I don't know, call it five, ten years? What do you, what do you, what do you think we're going to be, in terms of the, 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 the type of stuff that we're seeing? I think we're going to still see some big swings and big stars, big producers. 
But I think these deals will no longer be done with like, hey, here's some money. See what you can do. I think there's got to be more structure around it than that. You look at Netflix with some of their uh, deals like Ryan Murphy, for example, or you see uh, big shows like um, uh, just like a bunch of superhero dramas that came out recently on Netflix that didn't do so well and got canceled almost immediately. Um, there are all kinds of, of, of big swings that have happened with, without much rigor around them. There's still a hunger for premium, smart, you know, eyebrow-raising series, dramas. This is the stuff with which HBO is built. And I think there's still a desire for it from viewers. What about the proliferation of streamers? I mean, once upon a time, it was Netflix, and then all of a sudden we saw a few more and a few more, and now you're looking around, you're like, what, how many subscriptions do I need? Do I need six? Do I need eight? Do I need ten to get all the stuff I want? Do you see the field narrowing at all, or maybe somebody's getting bought out, shut down, something like that? There's still a lot of thought that these companies aren't big enough. Some of the old school companies may need to get bigger as time goes by. You know, for Apple and Amazon, these things are kind of rounding errors. They're not really, uh, they're spending money on it, but they're not, I think they have, they have plenty of cash in the, in their reserves. But like Paramount, NBC, even Disney are having a hard time making a go of it. Um, so yeah, I do think, you know, there's a call, maybe a call to merge, to add on, to decouple. Maybe you sell off an asset that you feel isn't, isn't key for you anymore and send, send it to private equity or, or some sort of, you know, private ownership. I, I do think we're going to see a lot more transactions uh, over the next couple of years as these companies try and figure out if they're on Game of Thrones in some way, who's going to remain on top. And I think that you might see some different uh, financial combinations and strategy emerge as they try and keep doing that. So there's a chance we might actually get some more one-stop shopping, almost the way it, it, it used to be. You know, you get everything you might want or most of it for a couple subscriptions instead of paying for, you know, so many, just all, you know, all of these subscriptions. I think there, there's there's already been calls to rebundle things. And I I know consumers don't like, didn't no one loves their cable company. Um, maybe you have more say over what you're going to buy and what you're going to see, and maybe you can pay for it accordingly. You know, a lot of people still have, have their own kind of, they call it churn. What you want, you sign up for Netflix and watch that you really wanted to see. And when you've watched it, you pull off Netflix and go sign up for Disney Plus. You kind of make your dollars work when you, as you, as you kind of maneuver around different programming options. So that's, that's another, another direction to kind of watch. Well, Brian Steinberg, thanks for that pleasure. Thank you very much. Brian Steinberg is the senior TV editor for Variety. Coming up on next week's show, imagine this. You walk into a car dealership, find a vehicle you want to buy, go to pay for it with cash, and get told no. I was in a state of just incredulity. I said, okay, let me understand this. If we don't agree to finance the car, you won't sell us the car. We will walk out of here and you will lose a sale. And he said, yes. And again, I pushed back on that and I said, are you serious? Is this really happening? Because I bought a lot of cars in my life. I've never encountered this. And he basically said fairly abruptly, look, if you have no interest in financing this car, please leave. Why forced financing is happening on more Canadian car lots. That's next week. That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Danielle Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. 
Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haverstrud. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.